is Ashley Meelink, and welcome to our podcast series, Catechism and Sacraments. Today, we're going to be jumping into our catechism question number two from the New City Catechism, and this is part two of that episode. So we'll jump right in back to our panel with their conversation on this question and answer. Let's take a little bit of a different turn here. Um, I love the psalm that goes with this question and answer, but let's dive into the history of Christianity for just a second. Um, That's not something we've done here on the podcast before, but you know, this psalm says, all the nations you have made shall come and worship and you alone are God. And the fact that it says all the nations you have made is pretty specific language. So why is it so important for the Israelites to know that God chose them and that he's the only true God? Kathy, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I'm not even close to an expert in ancient Near Eastern religion. Sorry, that's not where my uh, education lies. But I think that the picture that we get out of the way that the Bible talks about other gods is that they were really everywhere in a way that we don't acknowledge in our culture. I mean, yes, gods are everywhere in our culture. We just don't call them that, right? We we sacrifice an awful lot of time to money or pleasure or um, popularity, right? They're, they're exactly. there. We just don't do them. But in the ancient Near East, you've got gods. And I mean, small G gods like Baal and Marduk and Moloch, like they're in conflict with one another. So, I mean, there's one uh, reading of Genesis that in the creation story, um, the author is taking specific um, descriptions of God that are basically ripped out of the pages of other religions, mythologies and saying, you thought your God was good. Oh, no, no, your mind is so much better. Check this out. Right. That there's, that's all over that, that creation story. Um, Or, I mean, there's more overt stories. There's Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you know, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on vacation. I love that part. Right. There's, there's such a sense of humor there. Or um, in 1 Samuel 5, you've got the story of the Philistine god Dagon. When um, when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, they put the Ark in the Temple of Dagon. And there are some humorous consequences. For a few mornings, Dagon's idol ends up on the floor or his arms break off or his legs break off or that sort of thing. Uh, there are not so humorous consequences. The Philistines really suffered because this avatar of God, right? The Ark of the Covenant was among them and wasn't supposed to be. And, you know, it's the Philistines who figure it out. And they're like, we got to get rid of this thing. And we better send gifts because we're messing with a God that we apparently shouldn't have messed with. Right. And so, you know, for the psalmist to go ahead and say in this passage that Israel chose or was chosen by God and that God is the only one true God, it's not something they wouldn't have already known. Right. There were tons of gods out there. They were fighting for dominance. Um, But what I don't know, and maybe Andrew can fill me in here is, you know, this idea of eternal dominance that everybody's going to eventually bow down and worship your God. Um, Was that something that someone in Israel's context would recognize or were gods more regional? So they had power in Philistine space, but not in Hittite space or not in Canaanite space. Um, What did that look like? That's a really insightful question, Kathy. And I I won't claim to be an expert in this area either, but from, uh, from what I do know, Um, I I think it's helpful to keep in mind that the way that a lot of these ancient Near Eastern nations thought about what their little G gods, uh, about what they were like, was they they would kind of 
look at their king or ruler and then sort of imagine a larger than life version of that human ruler. And, and so each nation or culture would have its own God or collection of gods and uh, they would have battles between them. And in fact, uh, earthly battles, battles that took place between different kings and empires were understood to be just an earthly theater uh, of another battle that was also raging between their gods. And that's why you have references in the Bible to uh, you know, people making comments about uh, their gods or the God of Israel is fighting for them. And that, that was part of the strategy of military commanders is thinking through, okay, what's the strategy that the gods are using? Using in this battle. Um, and so, um, so, so if you have this conception of, of warrior gods or, or conqueror gods, that means that if you go to war against a different nation that serves a different God and you defeat them, that means that your God has defeated their God. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, that means that you have, you know, rights therefore to kind of assimilate those people into the worship of your God and your God is now conquering and becoming greater and more powerful. Uh, but, but that would not have necessarily translated into this idea of my God is the God that everybody's going to worship. Uh, and certainly not the idea of my God being a God that everyone will be drawn to freely come and worship because if more people are coming to worship my God, that's usually the result of conquest in, in the way that the ancients uh, would have thought of that. And so I think that the psalmist really is very countercultural in, in how this is being described. Um, the, the idea that, uh, that the God of Israel is God who wants people of all nations to come to him it is one that pops up a lot throughout the Old Testament. It's not just a fluke or an anomaly. It's, it's part of the theology that emerges from the Old Testament writings. And, uh, and that would have been in many ways, very revolutionary in, in this setting of regional deities um, where, where uh, you don't really have a desire for everyone to come to love and worship and serve your God. You just want your God to lead you to dominance over everybody else. And you don't really care what happens with their worship and, and their religious life so much. Um, in response to your question, Ashley, I, I agree with what Kathy has said that, you know, Israel, for most of its history, it, it was an underdog nation. And it was really easy for the people of Israel to look at the nations around them and see a lot of people who looked really threatening and really intimidating. And uh, the way that the religious practices of those other nations portrayed those gods, like, like Baal, as you mentioned, Kathy, um, very warlike, very in intimidating. And so um, when you feel weak and when you feel relatively powerless compared to uh, aggressive people around you, it can be so extremely comforting to be told that, no, that the claims that you hear of these warlike people with their warlike gods, um, that's not that's not all that there is to this, uh, that really our God is the true God. Our God is exalted above all of these other claims, and he is the one who's looking out for us. Now, that has the ability to speak hope and to speak comfort and to speak peace that I think really would have stood out in the midst of Israel's very vulnerable and precarious feeling position in that part of the world. Hang on a second, Andrew. This is Psalm 86. Is this an exilic psalm? I mean, is this something that they would have been reading in Babylon or in Assyria when, you know, it looks like somebody else's gods have won out? 
I mean, uh, I I would need to look up a little bit know. more about the the context of this psalm. But but presumably, any of any of the psalms that they had, you know, some of the psalms are exilic in nature. Uh, many of them are pre-exilic in nature, and and any of them could have uh, been a source of worship and religious reflection at that time. And so, regardless of when this particular psalm or any particular psalm originated, I think it's a pretty safe. Uh, assumption to say that at some point the people of Israel uh, were reading these words at a time where it really looked like they were on the losing side and uh, where uh, where the people who were conquering them um, could could point to their gods as being superior. And, and that's true, not just of the period of exile. That's true of, of much of the era of the kings uh, for, for a lot of uh, for a lot of the period of time that's recorded in the books of First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, Israel was kind of a a vassal state that was paying tribute to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians at times to the Egyptians, and and so it would have been a really audacious claim for a nation that was kind of subservient to these great empires to say our, our God is actually greater than the gods that really seem like they've given earthly success to those people instead of to us. And I think looking at all of that history and the way that that applies to the Israelites still applies to us now. I want my children to walk away from our breakfast table every day, knowing that every single person they come into contact with God is the creator and sustainer of them. I mean, that's what this question says. So the Israelites needed to feel that. They needed to understand that everyone really belongs to God. They're really his. Um, and I want my kids to walk away with that same understanding. So speaking of my kids, I have an almost five-year-old, a two-year-old, and an almost one-year-old at home. Uh, the five-year-old can can get this answer pretty easily, but obviously my two-year-old, I mean, has no real grasp on what's being said. So if you were going to simplify this question and answer in some way, how would you simplify it? So, I mean, you can't really get much shorter than the kids' uh, answer to the new city here, and it's just God is the creator of everyone and everything. By the way, it sidesteps all of the other uh, problems of evil and things like that just focuses on the who God is. Um, but the way I tried to make it more real with the kids was just to start out with, hey, God made everything we can see. You know, he made planets and trees and animals and he made people, but he made things that we can't see too. So he made the air we breathe or he made the way we think. Um, so then in Sunday school, you know, we let the kids name things what, that God made, which I knew this was going to happen, but it was still nice. I had a first grader pipe up and be like, airplanes. And so you get to have a really fun conversation with kids about, well, did God make an airplane or did God make people? And then people made airplanes. And so it's, it's a jumping off point too for, um, first off, letting your kids chew on that idea, right? That it's, it's kind of fun with, with the little kids, but this, um, jumping off point that we're made in God's image that, you know, God delights in creating things and pronouncing them good. And, you know, in the same way we can be delighted by making an airplane, for example. And um, so it's, it's just one of those things that I, I think, you know, what we see, what we didn't see, letting, letting the kids just name it off and then thinking about that. 
Yeah. Thanks. That's a great, that's a great way to think about it. Incorporating the way that our kids actually interact with the world around them. I, I appreciate that insight. Um, Pastor Andrew, you have an experience with a different catechism and it's interesting because again, we use the new city catechism at home, but we use the songs that go with your catechism. Um, so I'm curious to hear your answer on this one. Yes. Well, the, the way the new city catechism puts this together, this is a massive answer it includes so much. Uh, my goodness, there's a lot of content there, even for adults to process. So the catechism that we've used with my kids at home, it, it breaks down a lot of these into lots of other smaller questions. In fact, that catechism starts off by asking who made you? The answer, God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Now, now, glory is a little bit abstract, even for adults to think about. But if you mention that concept enough with kids and illustrate it with wonder and pointing to different things and how they show God's glory, then the concept becomes less abstract and more relatable to them. And we found that this is helpful and really translates well. When I, when I was uh, doing this catechism with my oldest son, uh, we would go on, you know, trips and we would be outdoors and he had a pretty good handle on these first few questions and we would see something like a rock or a leaf and I would ask him, hey, who made rocks? God made rocks. God made all rocks. Why do you think God made rocks? For his glory. And so this, this concept is one that as parents, I think there are a lot of opportunities that we can transfer it to different specific settings. And just even as we're going about day to day life, uh, point out connections between things that we're thinking about and interacting with with our kids and, and these truths that they're learning in a catechism. Yeah, I love hearing both of you talk about getting your kids out in nature because I've I, personally I found that that's one of the easiest ways to show my kids who God is because look at all of the crazy, cool, incredible things that He's made. Um, we ran across across a snake one day on one of our hikes, which isn't common here in Northern Indiana to find a snake, and. It, our oldest daughter still talks about it to the, I mean, it's been two years and she still brings up this snake on a regular basis. I just don't know why God made snakes. And I'm like, well, you know, like a lot of us have that question. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really good. All right. So the last question, um, for today, and you've kind of already touched on some of this, but, um, I'm sure you have more to add. What are some practical ways we can apply this question and answer to our life? And again, that can be specifically our lives as we're living, or it can be how we interact with our kids um, and this question and answer. So Pastor Andrew, I'll let you start us off. Okay. Yeah. Well, as, as I mentioned, this is a meaty question. And one of the ways where it gets meaty in a way that's still valuable is that it gets to think, uh, you know, it gets us to think about what are the attributes of God? What is God like? And I think that that's helpful, uh, especially as we as parents are having conversations with our kids about what we want them to be like as we're trying to, to teach them and, uh, and uh, shepherd them into exhibiting uh, hearts and lives that resemble who God is, that we can have conversations about, you know, we want to be people of truth. We want to be people of love. We want to be people of wisdom. 
And the reason for that isn't because mommy and daddy said so, or because, well, life just goes better if you live this way, which it does. But, but the reason for that is, uh, dear daughter, dear son, we want you to be a person of truth, a person of love, a person of honor and respect, because that's who God is. And so it roots human behavior and virtue and everything that we aspire to be and that we aspire for our kids to be in the very person of God himself. Thank you. Kathy, what do you have to add? So first off, I appreciate what you said, Andrew, that the idea that, you know, we, we want to be like God. So knowing what God is, that helps us understand what we're supposed to imitate. Um, but I know the thing that struck me when I was prepping this time uh, for the kids was when I was thinking about these attributes of God, the idea that God is infinite and that the idea that God is the sustainer um, kind of chimed with me in a way that they hadn't before, that if God is infinite, then he has everything he needs. And that if he's the sustainer, he's going to give me what he needs from that infinity. And it probably has to do with the last two and a half years of pandemic and trying to civilize small humans and all of all of the uncertainties that comes with that. But that idea that God has what I, what I need and he's not unwilling to share it. Um, it's been something that has come up um, in conversations with my second grader. You know, he'll, he'll get into, you know, being nervous about something or afraid of something. And so when we get to the afraid part and we'll start singing, you know, God is the creator of everyone and everything. Cause that's the, that's the song that goes with it. And he thinks I'm crazy, but you know, it, it kind of gets him to stop and think about it that, Hey, if, if God is the creator, then maybe we can, you know, rely on that a little bit more. And, you know, kind of use that as a way to face what we're afraid of. Yeah. Um, when you made the comment about him sustaining us out of his own infinity, it made me think of a friend of mine who, whenever she doesn't get enough sleep, her prayer is that God will multiply her sleep, the sleep that she did get, multiply it. And I've found that when I do have the presence of mind to pray that prayer, it happens. I have what I need out of his infinity, which is mind boggling to get through my day. So thank you for that. That's a really good perspective and a good thing to keep in our minds that we are sustained because he is infinite. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. It's always so good to have these conversations and dive in a little bit deeper with you. Um, for those of you listening, if you have further questions or comments, go ahead and put them in the comment section, or you can always email us here at the church. Thanks guys.